We've come to the preaching of God's word now. Uh, so turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1 and 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at first things first. It's a sermon which I hope will be something to prepare us, prepare our hearts and our minds uh, to come back to church. Uh, many churches in Wales now are starting to do that. And so this would be a good message for preparing us for that. It's going to be quite something, isn't it? Now, for those of us who are kids watching this, um, welcome. It's great to uh, pretend to be able to see you through this recording. Um, but what we're going to do, if, you, if you're drawing things and building things with Lego or whatever it is, uh, we're going to build something really cool today. I want you to draw a big pile of rubble bricks and stones, all sorts of rubbish that's been there for a long time, weeds growing on it and everything. And that is the temple of the living God. And in front of it, I want you to draw an altar of sacrifice with someone doing a sacrifice on it. And in front of that, I want you to draw or build um, a massive group of people, as many Lego people as you have, and try and make them all look different, all sorts of different people there, in front of the altar, in front of a pile of rubble, all right? And hopefully, in the message, that'll become a bit clearer as to what that all means. So we're looking at Ezra 3 and 1, where the people of God, our forefathers, are leaving exile in Persia and coming back to Jerusalem, to the house of God, to worship him. They've been in exile in, in Persia for almost a lifetime. And while they've been there, they've been unable to worship God as they'd like and unable to worship him as the law prescribes. They've not been able to gather. They've not been able to sing or read together or do anything really like that. Uh, church has been closed for decades. And now when we come to Ezra 1 and 3, the Lord is fulfilling his promise to bring them out of exile back to God's house to worship him with prayer, with praise, with building things, with sacrifices, with all sorts of things that are worship to God. Now this leaving exile, going from Persia to Jerusalem, it took a couple of months. It took upwards of five months, six months, this massive journey, a huge mammoth logistical expedition. I wonder, like, how did they survive that journey? How did they travel? How did they rendezvous? They were Jews all over the Persian Empire. How did they all meet up? How did they carry their baggage? What about security on that journey? What about finances? There's all these interesting questions that are conspicuously omitted. We're not told anything about it. Why is that? It's because first things are first, the priority of worship. The priority of worship. And so that's, these are our points then on the priority of worship. The first one, the priority of unity in worship. And that, we see that in chapter 1 verse 5 and chapter 3 verses 10 to 13. I wonder, if, did you notice um, a couple of times in our readings, we had the phrase, as one man. Now that phrase, it only appears seven times in our English Old Testaments. And two of those times, or three of those times, are just in those two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, that are right next to each other, are written at the same time. And so what we have here, in a Bible that's, say, over a thousand pages long, You've just got 20 pages where as one man keeps coming up. And that's important. It's, it's describing our forefathers united together as one man, as if it's one person coming to God's house with a single determination to worship the Lord for saving his church. 
Can you think of a single time in all of the history of our fathers when they were so unified as this in worshipping the Lord? Perhaps no time in their history had they been so unified as this. In Nehemiah 8, talking about the same period of times, um, it says that they worshipped the Lord in a way that they hadn't done since Joshua's days. They were so unified in their worship. You can see something of their surprising unity in chapter 1 and verse 5, where it talks about all sorts of different people coming together to worship the Lord, coming together to leave Persia, to head to Jerusalem, to worship God in these ways. Now, I want you to think for a moment. How long had they been in exile? It was around about 60 years or so, almost a lifetime. So how many of these many, many people that we read of in chapter 1, verse 5, how many of them had ever even seen the temple? How many of them had ever even seen the borders of Israel before? So many of them had never been to the promised land, and yet they were united in their desire to go there, to worship the Lord for his salvation as he wanted to be worshipped. Many of them, it would be for the first time that they would have done it quite like this. Everything was being concentrated now on their priorities. Uh, life as they knew it in Persia was beginning to fade away next to that priority of worshipping God in his house with his people. Why? Why was everything fading away that they once knew next to the priority of coming to God's house to worship him? Because first things are first. The priority of worship. To highlight how striking their uh, unity was in this, consider the barriers to their unity. Look again at 1.5 and look at the variety of people that we have there. We have the heads of the fathers, you can call them leaders or, or elders. We've got their priests. There are Levites there that you could call like, like deacons or like servants of the house of God. All sorts of people. And it says here, and all who were moved. It's everyone. There's so many of them. And they're so different in different types of people. Just imagine being there and seeing this enormous caravan of immigrants leaving Persia for Jerusalem. There are young people there. There are probably children there. Uh, going with their mams and dads to God's house to worship him. There are old people there with their long beards. Such a diverse group of people. And yet they were like one man going to God's house to worship him. Now that's nothing impressive, you might say, that sort of unity. You can see that at any rugby match. If you go down to St. Mary Street in Cardiff uh, on, on a match day, you can see diverse groups of people, young and old, fat and thin, rich and poor, and you can see them all gathered from all over the world, united behind one priority, to watch a rugby game. But is that the same? What's the difference? How much does it cost to watch a rugby game? You see, many people, even massive, diverse crowds, can be united behind cheap causes like rugby games or like political campaigns or whatever you like. But here in Ezra 3, Everyone was leaving everything behind. They were united in their purpose to go to God's house to worship him. 
But they were also united in the agreement that that was worth everything to them. They were leaving their livelihoods behind. They were leaving uh, their jobs behind, their homes behind, and they were never going to come back because this was the priority. It was worth everything to them to leave everything behind and worship the Lord in his house as he wished with his people. As we anticipate coming back to church, uh, gathering to worship God uh, as before, gathering with his people to worship him, are we being stirred up like that? To count the worship of the living God in his house, with his people, in his ways, worth more than everything and anything else in our lives? Are you considering it uh, worth more than everything in your life to follow the Lord Jesus? Is that worth everything to you? Will we gather as one man to praise the Lord Jesus for saving us from exile and bringing us to God's house and God's people to know the Father? Is that worth everything to us? That is the challenge of Ezra 1 and 3. Now, these are remarkable, striking days, aren't they, for the people of God, for our forefathers. How do we explain it? How do we explain uh, what happened to them? How did it happen to them? Can it happen to us? Because it is really startling, isn't it? You've got here a diluted and dispersed ethnic group, and they're suddenly being moved as one man to pursue the worship of the Lord in his house, in his ways, and in manners in which... Many of them, most of them, had never even experienced in a language that many of them had probably forgotten, in a place which now, just a pile of rubble, most of them had never been to. At the cost of their jobs, of their homes, their friends, their families, their livelihoods and everything that they knew. What could possibly cause such a motivation? But if you look at chapter 1 again in verse 5, you'll see the answer there. All whose spirits God had moved. God had moved their spirits to do that. You see, for all of their diversity, they had this in common. The Holy Spirit had stirred them up and brought all of their priorities in line. You could say that the Spirit of Christ was the cause for their motivation. One of the minor prophets is called Zechariah. Uh, if you can remember where that is, turn, turn there with me. There's this lovely verse in chapter 4 and verse 6. Now, Zechariah is writing at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. So he's talking about the same things. And he's talking about the task that they have to do now to worship God together. And he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, as unusual as all this may seem, it should be quite familiar. The Holy Spirit bringing the church as one man to worship the Lord for his faithful salvation in Jesus Christ. It's always been this way. Is that happening to us today? Is the Holy Spirit stirring us up to have first things first? Let us all individually and as churches ask the Father to send us the Holy Spirit so that we can be stirred up as one 
to make first things first the priority of worshipping God in his house with his people in his ways. To have unity around that priority. All right, so that's priority of unity in worship. And now we're going to see the priority of diversity in worship in chapter 3, verse 1, and in chapter 3, 8 to 13. When the exiles returned, were they assimilated into the life of those Jews who had been left behind? What about the resident Jews who were still there when the exiles returned? Did they have to adopt all the Persian customs now, all the Persian turns of phrases and the Persian way of doing things? No, I don't see anything like that happening at all. You see, the priority of worship was bigger than all of their differences. And so what we see is a diverse bunch of people gathering to worship the Lord without any assimilation at all. Imagine that scene again. You remember watching all those people leave Persia, heading for Jerusalem. That big caravan of immigrants that you watched, they've now finally arrived at God's house. And it's the same crazy random patchwork of people, all sorts of different people. And what we see in 3.1 is the Persian Jews, the exiles, coming back to Jerusalem and being joined by all of the resident Jews. They're all coming together, all sorts of different people. And it doesn't matter, immigrant people or, or people who are already resident there, they're the Lord's people coming to worship God. Their diversity was sort of, sort of underneath this massive priority of worshiping the Lord together. And so in 3.8, we read about young men who were there. And in 3.12, we read about old men who were there, the oldest and the youngest serving together. When Nehemiah shows up a little bit later, we read about the women that were there taking the lead in building parts of the walls. We read about goldsmiths and merchants working together with princes and with priests. Why? What trumped all of these differences? First things were first. The priority of worship conquered all of those differences. So there was no assimilation needed at all. But what's the biggest diversity? What's the biggest change or the biggest difference between the people in chapter 3? Did you hear it in the reading? Do you see it right there at the end? In chapter 3 and verse 12, we read about a happy day when there were some people who were just almost lost in wonder, love and praise. They were shouting for joy, praising the Lord for his faithfulness in saving them, in returning them to God's house together. It was real, it was heartfelt, it was joyous worship in the spirit. They were so happy. And yet, also in the same verse, we read about a sad day when some people were so sad they were mourning the ravages and the ruins of sin which had ruined their temple and brought their country down to nothing they were so sad which group would you belong to would you be with the happy group that was so just so praising the Lord for his mercy, for his faithfulness, for his salvation? Or would you be with the sad group who say this temple is just not as glorious as the last? 
The, the glory being brought to God is just not what it should be. He's worth so much more. Now, commentaries are very helpful to me in writing sermons and things, you know. But one of the questions that a lot of them ask at this point is, who was right? And I wonder, what do you think? Was it the joyous or the sad? Who was right? Perhaps the happy people were a bit sentimental or even a bit sensationalist. Perhaps they would do well to remember the sin that has destroyed their country and ruined their people and brought them into exile in the first place. But maybe the sad people are in the wrong. Maybe they should focus more on heartfelt, real, true worship and join their brothers in worship of the Lord. Maybe they were too nostalgic. Uh, perhaps they were despising the day of small things. Perhaps they were disobeying Ecclesiastes 7 that says, don't call the former days better than these. As interesting as those questions are, and whatever your answer may be, the book of Ezra asks no such questions. Can you tell from either response, the happy or the sad, which people are more zealous, which are more holy, which are more righteous? You and I, we must be charitable and sympathetic to both responses, since both are sincere and born from the same priority of worship. Let's say you're still there, you're still in Jerusalem with this massive crowd of people that are all worshipping the Lord and you see people getting carried away. And so you go up to them, whether happy or sad, and you say, pull yourself together. Their response, whether happy or sad, is, I'm sorry. I just want to praise and worship the Lord. You see, both groups were just so thankful to be back in God's house with his people worshipping the Lord. Neither of them are correcting or berating one another. Why? Because first things were first. The worship and sincere heartfelt praise of God, that came first to them. And so how other people are responding to worship, it didn't come into the equation. Their first priority was worshipping God together. You know, when we come back to church, how do you think we should do it? What do you think is the best way? Are you going to be happy or sad when you come back? When you come back and you see more empty spaces and you can't shake hands or you can't hug people or whatever it may be, and you can't have your tea and coffees and biscuits and stuff, are you going to be sad by that? Or when you come back, and you get to read again, and you get to pray again, you get to hear preaching live again, are you going to be over the moon? Whatever your answer is, Ezra 3 demands of us the greatest sympathy for the sincere and heartfelt responses of our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, because first things are first. We will be constrained, each of us, to obey, regardless of our own feelings, what Romans 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now hang on, we've missed a bit. We've missed a really important bit. Because among all of these priorities of worshipping the Lord together in unity and in diversity, there is another priority. There's a priority among, above the priorities. 
a priority with a capital P. When you come back, what are you looking forward to most? What was it that the people returning from exile to the house of God together, what was it that they were itching to do? Build their walls, build their houses. No, surely the temple is more spiritual. Let's build that first. Let's put a roof on, keep the rain out. Or what good's a roof? You, you, need, you need to have the holiest place built first. But you can't have that without the veil. Surely all these spiritual things should give way to pragmatism and we should put the, we should put the foundations in first. You know, something trumps their walls. Something was more important than their homes. Something was more important even than their temple. Before the temple was built, before their homes and their walls were built, they rebuilt the altar. They rebuilt the altar to put their sacrifices on. Why? Because first things are first. And that brings us to our final point, the priority of sacrifice in their worship. You see, they had learned from the sins of their fathers not to put security above the worship of God. They loved the gathered worship of God with his people more, they loved it more than their homes. They loved it more than the integrity of their walls and their money, even than their temple. They were happy to praise God in that big pile of rubble if they could have their sacrifices central to their worship. You know, in the month, uh, the seventh month that we read about in Ezra 3, there were 219 sacrifices, and that's not including all the voluntary ones in verse 5. Why? Why? When you've got an economy to recover, you've got hospitals and farms to restore, and homes to build, and walls to build to keep the enemies out, why spend precious time and precious resources offering all of this sacrifice? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And they know that. Their worship, their homes, their temple, all counts for nothing at all if they have uncovered sin in their lives. If before God they stand guilty. And so for all of their priorities, this one is their top priority. Making sacrifices to cover their sin. Do all of our priorities collapse into that one priority? Having a sacrifice, our, all of our worship, all of our effort, it's all in vain if it's not focused on and around the cross of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice, the blood that covers our sins. That's what we desperately need first and foremost above everything else. These were remarkable days, weren't they? When such a diverse group of people from all over uh, were brought together as one man by the Holy Spirit to offer sacrifices and worship the Lord together. And yet, as unique a time as it was, it wasn't the last time that on this very spot in Jerusalem, we had a unity of people, a sacrifice and mixed feelings. Can you remember the time when that happened next? It was a few hundred years later, when a diverse group of people, Jews and Romans, came together as one man, 
united behind one priority to crucify the Lord Jesus. Jesus gave up his life as a sacrifice for sinners and on that altar of a cross, he covered sin with his blood while some mourned, some rejoiced. Now, why did Jesus die? There are thousands of answers to that question, but here's one. To bring a fantastically diverse group of people from every nation, tribe, language, and time unified to make them a unified single group of people who in their diversity share a common priority, worshipping the Lord in the Spirit, worshipping Christ who made himself a sacrifice for sinners to cover our sin, to make our worship acceptable in the sight of the Father. When we return to church as the diverse, unified group of Christians that we are, let's make the spiritual worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for sinners, the top priority. Why? Because first things are first. As a church, we are a diverse group of people leaving the exile of sin behind. Like the people leaving Egypt for the promised land, we are like the exiles leaving Persia for the promised land. And we come together, a diverse, unified group of people behind one priority to worship Christ, the sacrifice for sinners. Let's make that our top priority because first things are first. Now I'm going to finish the sermon by reading just one verse from Revelation 7. Uh, where the Apostle John sees something remarkably similar to what we've read in Ezra. In Revelation 7, verse 9, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And on that day, there will be no mixed feelings at all. We may be weeping, but it'll be tears of joy, which the Lord Jesus will wipe away himself. I just want to pray to finish with you. Um, so let's pray together very quickly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the priorities that you have given to your people. We thank you, Lord, that you have made Christ all in all to us and everything to us, your people. We praise you, Father, that even in Ezra's days, we can read about the preeminence and the firstness, the first things first of the sacrifices that you have provided to cover our sin. We pray, Father, that you would unite us together, a diverse group of people, under the blood of the Lord Jesus, that we may know him better and worship him better, that we may uh, be, please you with our praise and our worship that is in the Spirit. Please help us as we come back to church together. Give us the Holy Spirit that we'd be unified in our worship. And pray, Father, that you should uh, give us great sympathy and love for one another as we do so. That in all things, Lord, uh, you should have the preeminence and that you should be pleased with our worship. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you very much, everybody. Now, next up, nine o'clock, is the uh, Bible Hour. Um, I hope to see some of you there. We're carrying on in the book of Daniel. God bless.